Hey, thank you. Thank you, Al. I'm Stacy, and I'm an alcoholic. Uh, thanks for inviting me. It's good to be back at Bolden. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about living in Austin. Uh, I was there from 96 to 2002, and Bolden holds a really close place in my heart. So good to see you guys. I'm from Louisiana, and I've been up here in uh, New York for about uh, shit 14 years, I guess. Um, I have a timer set and, um, I think you'd said maybe like 40 minutes or so. So up here in New York, we share for about 20 and then the rest of the meeting is open to people sharing about what the speaker said. So we do a lot of speaker talks up here, but we're limited to only have to talk for 20 minutes. And surprisingly, not many people get out of the problem or the, you know, what it used to be like. You don't hear much of, you know, what it's like now. Uh, But I always try to split whatever time that I have in half to where I talk about what it used to be like, what happened, and what it's like now. Um, I, I don't remember meeting Al at the thing, but I know what meeting he's talking about. Um, there's this meeting in Queens and I heard it was a really great big book meeting. And I remember going out there and it was in this church and it had like this echo and most of the members there had these thick Irish accents. And when I left, I I didn't hear a damn thing. Anybody said, I didn't know what anybody had said. It was like, (laughs) but anyway, from that day on, I kept Al's number. And ever since I've been in Manhattan, I knew he was a Texan, and I knew by the way he talked that he practiced this program, that he actually walked the walk. And uh, every time I met a guy that needed a sponsor, I would send them Al's number. And so, you know, he was, and you still are, you're a big staple to me in the AA here in New York, so... I'm glad that you remember where we met. I remember that meeting. And um, anyway, I got sober October 6, 1986. I got sober when I was 18 years old. I was about to turn 19. And I'm from Louisiana. My home group is uh, Saturday Beginners here in uh, New York. We meet on Saturday mornings from 1030 to 1130. We have two different meetings. One meeting is downstairs. It's a speaker meeting. And the speaker shares for 20 minutes, and then everybody shares on what they have said. And then there's, and at the same time, there's another meeting, and it's much smaller, 70 people now, usually maybe 50, and we read the book. And I lived in New York for eight years before I found this meeting, and what was so cool was it was a guy that I sponsored, and I've been sponsoring him maybe two months, and he said, come to this meeting with me. Thank God for being open-minded and not being a know-it-all or any of that. And I went, and uh, actually, Al was chairing uh, when I went to that meeting. <laughs> I wish I had just followed him around, I guess, but um, it ended up being my home group. And I thank God all the time for that group. It's it's had some ups and downs, but uh, we always continue to read the book and that we share about what we read. And the point of that for me is that if we're not really talking about what's in the big book or, you know, the answers to the problems, then we're kind of just talking about a bunch of bullshit. And uh, for me, 
like I come to be inspired. Like I want to hear something when I walk away that, that I go, oh my God, yes, that's the answer. That's it, you know. Because if you're like me, you know, it's like day by day, the solution can be, you know, sometimes calling your sponsor or saying a prayer or helping someone else. It can be all those things. But I come to AA meeting to sometimes just hear whatever it is that I, that I guess that I need to hear. So, um, you know, what happened was, you know, whenever you're in Louisiana and you're 14, 15 years old, you're looking for that fake ID and, uh, you know, uh, and you're trying to get your drink on, you know, go party and stuff. And, um, you know, by the time I made it here, I was absolutely in love with Crown Royal, tequila, uh, Budweiser beer. Um, you know, I think Corona had just come out, you know, and then you hear now, you know, they're like, people are drinking this white claw crap, you know, and you're like, what the hell is this, you know? And, um, you know, you hear about a lot of fancy stuff and, uh, but I'm an alcoholic. I'll never end up trying any of it, but, um, what happened for me, you know, in the big book, it talks about on page, I think 33, it talks about, you know, young people sometimes that hit a bottom and end up here, you know, well before their time. And it talks about saving them 25 years of, of having to really like either die like a lot of people do or just really, you know, end up in liver failure or something like that. And it also talks about women and, uh, and how, you know, sometimes we hit maybe a bottom faster. And what happened for me was, um, I knew, you know, the drinking for me, uh, you know, they talk about, you know, if you, if you try to stop and you can't, or if when you start drinking, you lose control over the amount you take, you're probably an alcoholic. Well, for me, I never got enough. It was like, I'd go out and I just, where was the next thing? It was next, the next, the next, the next. I went on and on and on. And one thing that helped me in sobriety was that saying, you know, one is too many and a thousand's not enough because I just, I could just go and go and go. And it was to the point sometimes where I was drinking alone and, uh, you know, um, the drinking eventually, you know, within a year or so at the age of 14, I was in mom's medicine cabinet, stealing the Ativan. It led to marijuana cocaine, crystal, acid, mushrooms, any kind of pills that you had, you know. And uh, for me, that was one of the real reasons that I hit bottom. And so, you know, when I came into this program, like I knew I was a drug addict, but I was unsure about my alcoholism. And so it did take a lot of, you know, I think a lot of us don't come in and go, oh, yeah, you know, I'm that's me. But for me, when I came in, I knew that I had hit a bottom. And um, I like what you people had. Um, <clears throat> I, you know, the drinking was, you know, um, it was, it was cutting class and drinking, drinking after school, drinking before school, eventually going off to college, being a complete fuck up at college, like fucking, you know, like cutting my leg on a barbed wire fence, like looking for mushrooms, not going to class, 
not getting the whole picture, if you know what I mean. I mean, you know, you hear some drunks that go, oh, yeah, I went to UT and I made a 3.5 or whatever, you know, like, and they're still, you know, they come to AA and they're just doing fine or whatever. And I, that was not my experience. I actually didn't get my shit together until I was about 40 years old. So I came into AA, you know, I'd hit this bottom. And I just, like, smoked cigarettes and drank coffee for a good 10 years. You know what I mean? Um, but so the drinking was an important part of my life. And it, it reminds me, like, whenever we take a newcomer through, and I'm sorry I'm going to be all over the place. That's just my personality. Um, but whenever we go through the book and we read Bill's story, like, we're trying to relate to the, to the way he thought, the way he felt, and the way he drank. And whenever he says liquor was taking an important, exhilarating part of my life, you know, I mean, definitely, you know, um, I was reading something recently and it said it's not just the intoxication, it's the elation that we feel from it, you know, it's this completeness that we feel, you know, and, um, you know, what I learned since I've been here is that I'm physically different from other people. You know, there are normal drinkers, hard drinkers, and there's real alcoholics. And uh, that my body physically reacts differently to others. And, uh, you know, so anyway, one thing led to another. I ended up in my first rehab. My parents sent me to all these psychiatrists. You know, they could see I had a personality change you know, in the other direction. That was just like, I wasn't a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, but they could see that like something was wrong with Stacy. And uh, they sent me to these psychiatrists. And of course, you know, they're asking you point blank, you know, about drinking and drugs. And I lied my ass off. You know, you're not gonna tell these people this stuff. Next thing you know, I ended up in treatment. <clears throat> I was so pissed off, man, cause they put you in and you're sleeping on this plastic mattress. And I remember sneaking in my Iron Maiden cassette tape, and, <laughs> and they were reading six six six. You know, my the girl was shaming me, and she was reading the titles of the songs, and she was like six six six, the number of the beast. You know, like why are you reading that, or why are you listening to this? You know, this isn't good. That was back when they were playing Ozzy Osbourne backwards and Black Sabbath, and you could hear the devil <laughs> talking on there or whatever. Anyway, and uh, Children of the Damned, and she was really, like, like putting me down for this music that I'd snuck me in to rehab. Anyway, I was there for a while. I got out on Christmas Pass, and um, I ended up getting drunker than Cooter Brown because I turned 18 December 20th, and they let me out December 24th just for a day for Christmas. And I went and got fucking plastered and uh, didn't even think about it. Like, I knew I was going. And uh, I went and slammed my hand on the bar, and I said, I just turned 18. And the girls started lining up kamikazes, and I started putting them away. And I went and rode around with my friends, and uh, they were passing the joint. And I said, no, 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 I can't smoke. You know, I'm a, I'm a drug addict. So I knew I was a drug addict. So anyway, they found out that I had been drinking. They thought I would smoked pot, but I didn't. And uh, anyway, they tacked on another week or so. And when I got out, you know, I knew I was a drug addict, but I didn't believe I was an alcoholic, so I kept drinking. And, you know, the drinking always led to the drugs. And, uh, you know, like that movie Scarface had come out about then, and uh, 
y'all know Scarface, like, man, he had it all, you know, and then he just fucked it all up, and that's how we are, you know, we can't just, you know, it's not, it's never going to be a positive thing, you know, for me, it's like they say in the book, we see others taking drinks with impunity, you know, they they can do it, you know, they can do whatever they're doing, but for me, I can't, and then I'm just here to talk about how, you know, alcoholism demands a solution. Either I'm drinking or I'm living a spiritual way of life. So, I, you know, it's one way or the other. And so <clears throat> my alcoholism, for me, produced this unmanageability. And for me, it's unmanageability a lot of times, even when I'm sober, if I'm trying to, to live on self-will. So whenever I got out of that, um, whenever I got out of that, um, treatment center and then I went back to drinking um within about seven months I went to the you know I was drinking and doing drugs and shooting up and um what would happen is I would put a needle in my arm and then I'd have to slit sit flat on the ground because my legs would shake uncontrollably um I'd been told by a doctor I had an enlarged liver it was a doctor my parents wanted me to talk to about this issue and um I had arthritis at times, and I don't know why that was. I still to this day don't know what it was, but I I got to where whenever I'd go out, I could hardly walk, Um, and I don't know what that was. Um, You know, whenever we would use needles, we would always uh, rinse them with water, and so, you know, who knows what all that contracted. Um, So I remember one time looking at the mirror. I was in, in my bedroom, and I was looking in my mirror, and uh, no one was looking back at me, and the whites of my eyes were yellow. And um, I said that prayer, God help me. And uh, sure, I'd prayed before, you know, whenever I was in trouble, whenever you get pulled over by the cops and you know you got drugs in the car, or you get pulled over by the cops once I was 17. I wasn't even old enough to be drinking. He had me doing a breathalyzer test. Uh, Yeah, I've said those prayers, but for this one, I was like, God help me. And uh, not long after that, I went down to the kitchen and my mom said, hey, you know, we're going to put you back in treatment. And I went and ran to my dad, the great enabler. I said, dad, I can't go to treatment. You know, it was like a Thursday. And he said, why not? I said, I got tickets to Ozzy Osbourne on Saturday night in Shreveport. And I said, I can't go. And so I ended up Friday night in New Orleans, scoring a shit ton of coke. And, um, and then Saturday night I went and listened to Ozzy and on Monday morning I went back and went into rehab. The difference was, I think after about two weeks of being in rehab, I was on that pink cloud. I was bouncing off the walls. Y'all was so happy. Uh, getting all that crap out of my system, uh, made me feel good. But you know, the AAs came in there And uh, I think that, you know, I was glad they were there, but I wasn't really present, if you know what I mean. I wasn't, I don't think I was very present for my first year. I was kind of foggy. And um, this chick came in, she graduated from the treatment center and she was bouncing off the wall. She was happy, joyous, and free. And I was like, girl, what's going on? Why are you happy, joyous, and free? And she said, I live in a halfway house in South Louisiana, and I went to my parents and I said, I want to live in a halfway house in South Louisiana. Like, I, whatever she's on, I want. And so my parents helped me pack up my little car. I had my little 30 days of sobriety, 
and I'm from Monroe, Louisiana, and I moved down to Lafayette, Louisiana. In my heart, it's the best place to be, ever be sober is in Lafayette, Louisiana. So I went down there, lived in the halfway house, and I started to do what you guys were doing. And all y'all were doing really was going to meetings. You know, we had group, group, and I had to get a job, and I had to make the bed and, and clean the bathroom and do all that stuff and help with cook and stuff. And um, I got a job. I was a cashier at a convenience store, and I was, what, 19 years old by that, 18, eight, 18 still. Yeah, by that time, I think. Yeah, yeah. 18, 19, something like that. Anyway, um, and I, you know, Turning Point was, was my home group. That was where I went to meetings. And uh, what drew me to you people was that y'all made me laugh. And whenever y'all laughed, I would get in my gut. I would like laugh, you know, it was the best laugh ever because you felt that down in here. And, um, and I started to hang out with other young people that were sober and, and we all traveled together, you know, we, and I had a bumper sticker on my car. It said party sober, you know, and, um, you know, there's a, a page in the book on page 101. It talks about, you know, are you spiritually fit to be going out, you know, or maybe you ought to work with another drunk instead, that kind of stuff. And, um, my sponsor believes that we're, be, that we're given a grace period, you know, that we're not, don't necessarily get right into the steps that we're given a grace period to be sober. And, um, I think that that's what happened to me. So after about three months in the halfway house, they kicked me out. They said I was a negative influence on the other girls there. And uh, I was getting ready to pack back up and move back to Monroe. And here's the example is like, you know, I know to, I know today that if I had gotten out of the treatment center and went back to the old people I was hanging out with, back to the old places, I don't think I'd have stayed sober. Like, that's real what they say. You know, change your playmates. Change where you're going. You know, you got to hang out with new people. And what I found, too, was I liked y'all better anyway, you know, that uh, you guys were like, you know, wanting to maybe do something. You know, we all had ideas. We were all talking about going to college and stuff like that. So anyway, I go to the store where I work, and this guy that I work with, he says, well, why would you move back to Monroe? You know, you already got a job. Why don't you just stay here? And it was another angel in my life, this guy, and it completely changed the course of my life. And uh, I ended up staying in Lafayette. I met this guy named Ben, and Ben told me about page 63. Page 63 is a third step prayer. He said, Stacy, do this prayer every day on your knees. It'll change your life. So I started to just turn to the book and read page 63. I had a big book, but I never really opened it up. Anyway, um, Ben and I were talking on the phone, and he says, uh, hey, Stacy, do you have a sponsor? And I said, Ben, you know, I got somebody, but I don't ever call her. And he said, okay, hang on a second. And he puts a woman on the phone, and her name is Helen. She says, hi, my name's Helen. I'm going to be your sponsor. So I was like, all right. And so um, next thing you know, I started going over to her house. And, uh, you know, when Helen said, hey, we're all going to go hear a speaker, we'd all pile up in the car and go together. And Helen would say, we're going to go pick up a drunk and take them to a meeting. And we would do those things, stuff like that. When I was young in sobriety, we, we did active 12-step calls. 
I see that still when I go back to Louisiana, but you don't see it much in New York. What you see up here is mostly uh, detoxes, and we bring AA brings meetings to the detoxes, and that's really as close as we get. And I mean, we, I mean, we got some pretty badass detoxes here, you know, where you walk in and you're like, shit, you know, it's kind of mm-hmm. like going to the jails, you know, bringing that message to the jails, uh, which we did in my first year too. Um, I actually had to share at a meeting last night and the whole meeting, like you only got to share for 10 minutes and the meeting was, you know, what did you do your first year, you know, to stay sober? And uh, that was kind of fun to talk about because, you know, it wasn't like, oh, work the steps, you know, like it was more like hang out with sober people and, uh, you know, get a sponsor and do what they say, you know, like. It wasn't for me, it wasn't like, you know, I don't remember arguing with my sponsor about step two or any of that stuff, you know. And speaking of, what's so great about that is that, you know, they do say it's a God of your own understanding. You can make up whatever you want it to be. You know, uh, when I was gotten to AA, I didn't know I was gay until, shit, I had like three years of sobriety. You know, and I went through that stuff. God doesn't love me because I'm gay, you know. And so, yeah, you know, I had to change it as I went, you know, kind of thing. So, anywho, um, I ended up, you know, getting with Helen and we ended up going through the steps. And, you know, I just want to share, you know, my experience, strength and hope around that. You know, I always, you know, they say God's on page 55, you know. I always knew there was something deep down within me. You know, I believed in a higher power. And when my sponsor said, get on your knees in the morning and ask God to help you stay sober, and then at night thank him, that was not hard for me. I didn't mind doing that at all. And um, whenever she said, okay, we're going to write your resentments, fears, and sex, and she showed me how to write it, I don't remember writing it perfectly. I don't even remember. I have newcomers come to my house now who um who write it and there's all kinds of shit it's all fucked up you know what i mean <laughs> and I, I sometimes i think well hell maybe i'm not explaining it right you know but my friend of mine said recently you don't remember this but yours probably wasn't perfect either but um you know the key point was that i wrote that wrote that fork column down it was so relieving to me to be able to write down who i was mad at and why i was mad and to just kind of get all that out. But then to, to completely separate myself and see what it was in me that had, had set that ball rolling. Or that part in the book where it says, uh, I've made a decision based on self, which later placed me in a position to be hurt. You know, that whenever I had something and I was completely justified and pissed off, that I had somebody that I could call a sponsor or even my good friends in AA and they could help turn it around and help me see where I had put myself in that position or, um, or help me, you know, take a look at what I could change. And as we've grown, you know, through, um, you know, through the years of being sober and, and seeing that it does all kind of go back to that serenity prayer, you know, that what I've learned is like my biggest pet peeve in New York City. And, you know, if if you were here forever, you know, you'll understand it. 
but um, it's a free-for-all, you know, like, I've heard in Tokyo, like, it's very organized. There's so many people that they organize it. And so, you know, if you're walking down the sidewalk, really, we should all be walking kind of single file on the right, and then people coming towards you should be on this side. But it's not like that, and it pisses me off, you know. Or another pet peeve, whenever you get out of the subway and you're going up the steps, there'll be somebody just standing on the subway steps, just checking their phone, you know, and the rest of us have to go around them. You know, it's like complete self-centeredness, you know. And then, you know, you have to ask yourself, well, am I going to change this person, you know, or do I just accept it and move on? And, or if it really bothers me, I, I can write about it in a four-step, you know. But uh, what I learned in AA is that I can't run around policing people. And so uh, that's been a big, big thing for me. Um, that, sure, you know, like if somebody's interfering with a child or an animal, yeah, I get that. But otherwise, like, it's none of my business. So anyway... I did a fifth step with Helen, and uh, at the end of it, you know, she said to me, is there anything you left out? Is there anything you need to tell me about? And sure enough, there was that deep, dark secret, and I went ahead and told her, and I had laid it all out, you know, and she told me to go home for an hour and do my six and seven, so I did. Then she told me, save your four step, don't burn it, and, and write your eight step list. Best thing about step eight is that you ain't on step nine. <laughs> You're just on step eight. You're just making a list. So I made the list, and um, and I went over it with her. And what's cool, too, about step eight is that you can write everybody down, and then when you meet with your sponsor, that's when you determine if you're actually going to make these or that or what. Because a lot of times I think it comes up where you go, well, you know, that might do more harm, so you're not going to make that amends. And I've had that come up before. I've also had my sponsor say, "Did flat out, did you harm that person? And I said, no, I did not harm that person. You know, I could say it within my heart. And then he said, well, then you don't owe an amends. And I was like, yes, you know. So um, during that first time, you know, I went went through the list and my sponsor because I was young my sponsor said you when you leave my house I want you to call this one call this one go here go here she had to give me specific directions because the first time I went through it I didn't do all I didn't know what to do so she whenever she gave me specific directions I went and did it so I went and made those amends and uh, before each one I would do a third step prayer. Before I do anything to this day, before a job interview, before I do a talk, before uh, anything important, I do a third step prayer. And what I've learned is kind of like my sponsor, his name is Bubba, he lives in Arkansas. He's got 34 years of sobriety and what he says is, you don't know what those people need to hear, but God does. And so God will speak through you. And um, I do believe in a little bit of preparation, but not not really, not with this stuff, not with like speaking or, you know, maybe with a job interview that might be different. But I always say a prayer. And what I have learned is that, you know, God's will, if I ask for God's will to be done and God's will is done, then it all turns out 
pretty great anyway. So, um, which I love to talk about, and I'm going to talk about, about how, like, you know, how we can have it set in our own minds that, um, that we wanted a certain way. And, uh, and we really, really, really want it that way. We really, really, really have to have this person in my relationship. And I've, I've read books uh, about attachment, you know, and if we can let go of that attachment, that we end up getting something even better. That's what I have found. That's been my experience. Um, so anyway, I go to make these amends. And, uh, you know, halfway through, just like it says, you know, are you willing to be amazed, you know? Um, I was laying on the carpet at my friend's apartment, and I remember just being high on life. And I said, ain't no, ain't no drugs or alcohol ever made me feel this good. I feel really good. And, um, you know, and I went ahead and made the rest of the amends. Um, just quickly... Um, there's one amends that of a girl that I'd never been able to find. And maybe a year ago, I was in my apartment here and I had, you know, I was just talking with the sponsee and, uh, she said, you know, I have a friend that's a private investigator because uh, there was one amends I hadn't made because her name's Brenda Jensen. It was just like, you might as well say John Smith. It was just somebody that I couldn't find. And I even had an old phone number with an old piece of paper or whatever. Anyway, uh, just a year ago, a friend of mine gave me the number uh, to a private eye, and I ended up getting this woman's uh, information. And um, I remember she had a son. The private eye said to me, I just want to let you know something before you open the email. And I said, what? And she said her son was killed in a car accident. And uh, I actually looked her up in, uh, over Christmas and um there was no answer it was disconnected or something and so i reached back out to the private investigator i said look i've tried her husband's on facebook he has not responded he hasn't even read the message i've tried the numbers no dice i've tried the emails nothing and the private house says to me well she definitely lives at that address and so you know i had to call my sponsor and i was like i'm in West Monroe, she's an hour away. What do I do? And he's like, man, it's like like they used to do in the old days. You go knock on her fucking door. And so I drove out there and I knocked on the door and uh, she was there and I was able to make that amends. And so it was a 32-year-old amends. And uh, they always say God will make the wherever possible. And so I was grateful for that. Um, I... Um, wanted to just say that you know living in Lafayette Louisiana and having you know the basis of you know hanging out with other women and you know we had book studies where we read the book and we read the 12 and 12 and we shared about what we read meant a lot to me and when I had 10 years of sobriety I picked up my 10-year chip my sponsor Jean Williams gave it to me and I moved to Austin and um, that was in 96 and I uh, got a guy named Mark Houston to be my sponsor. And I went to Bolden a lot. The 5.30 Friday was my favorite meeting. And the 1 o'clock Saturday meeting, the women's meeting, was the one that I'd go to the most. 
and uh, I went to Northland Western Trails, and I always forget the other one over there off of Mopac, where the circle, whatever is. Um, God damn it, I can't remember the name of it, but I used to go there a lot too. And I loved um, AA in Austin. I actually loved Austin. And the big thing that we say up here is you can't get any good Mexican food up here. There are Mexicans <laughs> everywhere, and you can't get any good Mexican food in New York City. You can fucking forget about it. And I was in Austin not long ago, and all I wanted to eat was tacos. Taco. Ta- My friends were like, tacos again? I was like, yes, tacos again. And um, I love to come back to visit. I still have friends there. And during that time, uh, the Internet came out. I've got about seven minutes left. I'm timing myself, y'all. The Internet came out, and uh, that was, uh, uh, when was that? The late 90s or whatever. And uh, I got my handle on AOL, and I started talking to this chick. And we talked for years and years and years, and she lived in Buffalo. Well, I don't know if y'all remember this or not, but back then you were considered crazy if you were talking to somebody that you didn't know that you had met on the internet. And so you kept it very discreet. Well, long story short is we ended up meeting and, uh, and I wasn't sure, you know, like I'd fallen in love with this chick over the phone, you know, but then when I met her, I wasn't really attracted to her. But, you know, but I was in love emotionally. And so I did a fifth step. It was my last fourth and fifth step with Mark. And, um, and all signs pointed to don't do it. You should just stay in Austin. And so this is an example for uh, making a decision that might not necessarily, you know, like we often go, okay, do I turn left or do I turn right? And the truth is, I'm not really sure it matters, but my inventory showed me don't go stay in austin and i had to go i had to go see if it was going to work out so i packed up my shit i left austin i went up to buffalo i was a respiratory therapist at seton northwest and at saint david's and some of y'all might know my friend michelle anderson jennifer wilson also and christy humphreys they're friends of mine and I know they wouldn't care if I said their last name. But anyway, um, so when I got to New York, I was a respiratory therapist, but I didn't have a degree. And they said, we'll hire you, but you have to work on getting your degree. Well, I went to uh, Erie Community College in Buffalo, and I fucking 4.0'd it, you know. And I was like, shit, I was, I don't know how old I was by then. But anyway, I think I was like 30-something late 30s and uh and my girlfriend at the time said hey you did so good you should go into something else and so i looked into all these other things well fuck i ended up going to physician assistant school and so all this was based on a relationship you know i love this girl we still get along we were together for four years but i became a pa and i love austin texas so much that i was like okay when i finish school i'm going back to austin And she said to me, why don't you uh, go try out in New York City? And just for whatever reason, I did. And so I moved here in 06. During that time as a PA uh, in PA school, I can honestly say I don't think that I was doing a lot of AA. But throughout, I've always tried to practice the principles. And um, 
you know, there are times when we're not able to do it perfectly. And I love what somebody read about and how it works. Um, just some of the things I was reading along and some of the things stood out to me that uh, you had said um, that we're not going to find an easier, softer way if you had decided what you want what we have and are willing to go to any lengths to get it. I think that's important to talk to our sponsees about, you know, like, are you willing to go to any lengths? Because I'll say, yeah, yeah, I'll sponsor you, you know, and then you find out that they just kind of want to half-ass it, you know, and I think that that's important. But there was something... I don't remember. Oh, maybe it's progress rather than perfection. Oh, none of us have been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. <clears throat> so I've made a lot of mistakes. I've done stuff like I've been attracted to people that I sponsor. Uh, I've made amends when I shouldn't have. Uh, you know, stuff like that. Um, you know, things that whenever you call your sponsor, you know, that, that that's, you know, you're really supposed to try to reach out to somebody before we make certain moves. And then at certain times, I just didn't. Um, so now I'm trying to think. So I've been, so I moved to New York. I, I finally found a home group. And uh, throughout this time, I just want to talk about the certain trials and low spots ahead. One of my favorite lines in the big book is that if we fail to perfect and enlarge our spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, we won't survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. I got involved in a relationship and she, she dumped me and uh, I was devastated. And um, I was uh, in the fetal position. I was sober 24 years and I wanted to die. And um, my uh, sponsor, you know, I ended up going to a different fellowship for that because I was really, really nuts. And I continued to work the steps. And um, my sponsor told me the one thing that I really needed to hear, she said, you need to go find a newcomer. And so I went to this meeting here. It's called Living Now. There's like two or 300 people there on a Sunday. And I went, and a girl that I sponsor, her name is Courtney, she goes, uh, she was there. And I walked in a little late, and I finally found a place to sit. I looked and looked, and I found a place to sit. And she goes, um, I said, Courtney, who's new here? And she said, that girl you just sat beside is new. And so I said, okay. So we, at the end, we said a prayer. And at the end of the prayer, I said, hey, my name's Stacy. She said, I'm Victoria. I said, do you have a sponsor? She goes, no. I said, I'm going to be your sponsor. And she said, okay. And to this day, we argue over who it helped more. But uh, during the break at that meeting, she prayed for a sponsor. And so that's how that worked. And we still argue over who it helped more because it saved my ass. I needed, I needed to get out of self. I was hurting really, really bad. So that's one of the things uh, that I wanted to share. And then, I mean, if I have a few more minutes, yeah. I mean, I can just wrap up. I just want to, yeah. you know, there's certain quotes and things that have been important to me throughout my sobriety. You know, Mark used to say the ego wants to defend itself. And, uh, you know, I learned in uh, the halfway house, you know, to just, you know, keep my mouth shut and say, I'll take a look at it. And um, there are so many people that have come before me 
And I find that it's always important to, to you know, open my ears and to listen. Yeah, I never know what God's going to be sending me. <coughs> but there's a, um, a quote that I wanted to read. Oh, fuck, I'm not going to be able to find it. That Don Pritz says, and I think this has always kind of been important to me. <clears throat> I'm sorry, y'all. I promise it'll be worth it. It is not selfish to live your life the way you want to. It is selfish to expect another to live their life so that you will be okay. So it's not selfish to live your life the way you want to. So it's not selfish for me to run around and do whatever I want. But it is selfish for me to expect someone else to change uh, so that I'll be okay. And I I think that that's always been kind of an important uh, thing for me to hear. Anyway, uh, so I know that they're going to have burning desires. And um, I really do believe that when I run out of shit to say, it's just time to shut up. Because I know I could just ramble on and on. Um, I I have a sponsor, and I'm so grateful for my sponsor. My sponsor uh, is always available. I can tell him anything. It's a male sponsor. Um, I don't know why, just I've known him all my life. He's actually the husband of Helen, who was my first sponsor. And, uh, you know, he's amazing. We had a woman that was at our home group that was wreaking havoc. She was pissing everybody off. And I called my sponsor and I said, she's a bitch. She's doing this. She's doing that. She's a fucking bitch. And he goes, it sounds like she's full of fear, you know. Like, he just made me melt, you know. He just changes the way that I see things. And he doesn't do it like he's planning it. It just comes out of his mouth like that. One time I called him and I said, Bubba, every time I call you, answer the phone. I said, how do you do that? I said, my pigeons call me. And I said, I'm watching Real Housewives. Like, I hit decline, you know. Like, I'm in the middle of my show or whatever. And he said, I answer the phone because I don't know if it's for me or for you. And um, he just says things like that. And it, it just reminds me of my higher power. So I'm just, uh, I'm delighted to be at Bolden and uh, I hope to meet some of you guys when all this is over and I can come down there. And, um, oh, I want to tell y'all real quick, I have a COVID home group and it's Bubba's meeting. It's in Arkansas. And if anybody wants the info, just reach out to Al and I'm happy to pass it on. We have like 20 people. It's a great meeting. Thank y'all. Love y'all. Thank y'all.